Welcome to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, where we help business leaders and individual contributors with actionable insights to hit their number and figure out the nuances of truly operating a business globally today, squeezing the essence of the lessons learned from the planet's top tech leaders. This is your guide to joining the fast track to global market scaling. So today we have the exciting part two of Joe Sekela's impressive uh, presence on the show, should I say. He was so impressive. In fact, we didn't manage to get everything done in the time allotted last time around. I still have a remainder of questions to ask him. Um, So I very much wanted to welcome him back to the show. Welcome back, Joe, for part two. Great. Thank you for thank you for giving me the time. I'm I'm really enjoying this particular podcast. So thank you so much for having me. Well, it's back. more than our pleasure to have you and um having spoken to you off air as well. It's quite apparent you have lived multiple lives um with your experience. We talked around obviously your professional career. We talked around, you know, your family, some of the exploits they're involved in. Um, and I, there's no question you've a go-getter mentality. We talked about how that, you know, last time, just to recap for our listeners, we talked around um, the direction of companies. We talked around funding. We talked about why that was important. We talked about some companies having different directions to others, you know, very much today. And a lot of the work that we would do is centered around VC funding. There is a series A through D to E to F sometimes an IPO expectation And there's a unicorn status is the new norm, but actually it's not necessarily for everybody. And we covered how there are alternative means by which to do that. We talked about dream exchange. We talked about the secondary market. Uh, We talked about um, product market fit. We talked around what an an appropriate return investment is, et cetera. Um, That was very much the direction of our our conversation. Um, What I wanted to get into today, just to start off, if we may, is talk around diversity and minority-owned companies or lack therein. It was a shocking statistic you, you shared with me um, last time round around one IPO uh, in the New York Stock Exchange that was minority-owned, which is quite phenomenal. Um, I suppose, and, and I've had my own good wife on the show talking around women in the workplace, um, and I've also been asked by a lot of my clients to hire diversely. Um, and often, in fact, I've been put in awkward legal situations where people are doing diversity for diversity's sake, and that doesn't help anyone either. Um, and, and I'd like to get into that. But let's just off the top, take us through why you feel that 1%, that one person uh, company happened and why there isn't more uh, diversity. And let's get into the interviews thereafter, if, if we could, uh, Joe. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, <clears throat> actually, it's not one percent. This is this is why this this statistic is so uh, just overwhelmingly obvious. Um, if it were if it, if this were cancer, uh, the tumor would be the size of a beach ball. That's how easy it is to spot. When it comes to public markets, the American investing public, uh, somewhat the global investing public, but certainly the American, there's only been one black-owned company in the history of stock exchanges listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Not 1%, years. One, one company, yes. So the, the importance is this, and, and um, this is the real importance. Okay, what you said is very, very true. 
diversity for diversity's sake doesn't really accomplish a solution to the problem. Right. So the, the, the real problem we face is, is that what we want to do and what investors want um, and what the employees want is they really want to work for the company that's forward thinking and has the best idea. Um, that, that, that's fundamentally, you know, the, the proverbial better mousetrap. That's what the direction of the investing community, when, you, when you're taking a job at a company, you're, you're looking for what are the future prospects of my life at this particular organization? Do, are they onto the better mousetrap? It's the same analysis for everyone. And so what, what has traditionally happened is the, the enormity of success, the, the staying power of success, really comes through pu the public markets. You can get A, B, C, D, E, F, G rounds, okay, <laughs> of, of private investing, but <clears throat> there, even those companies, it's very rare. It's almost, uh, it's, it's unicorn on top of unicorn that a company is able to stay private forever and grow to the size of, of its full potential. You know, where you have Apple Computer's a trillion dollar company today. Mm -hmm. There are no privately held companies that are a trillion dollars in value. Okay? Just for the sake of our benefit um, here and our, our listeners, why is it you need public money to scale at that level? Right, so excellent question. Um, one of the more significant factors for all the other relationships that the vendor relationships, uh, trade credit relationships, banking relationships, uh, in fact, employment relationships, regulatory relationships, is what's the speed with which you can react to the market's ups and downs? And this is, there's a double-edged sword to this because in a public capital market, clearly share price changes. Now it changes in nanoseconds. Okay. Okay. Uh, on the other hand, there's a very long-term stability to knowing that, the, for example, a banking relationship where you're a privately held company, um, you know, the owner of the company or the majority shareholders, they may be the collateralization of the loan. And what does the bank then have to do? Well, they have to look, banks, banks evaluate things this way. If the loan goes bad, what do we do? What can we sell? Who, can, we sell the, uh, can, can we sell the factory? <laughs> can right. we sell the inventory? They're taking security interests and in all these, these assets that, that need to be sold. Whereas in a public capital market, you've got the liquidity of the stock. You have a liquid capital market that says, all right, well, we're extending large amounts of credit. Our pilot company um, was before they were a public company, the pilot for what we're doing. Before they were public, they had a very difficult time getting a $5 million line of credit for working capital. Mm -hmm. Immediately after being public, their bank offered them a, a $20 million line of credit for acquisitions. <laughs> there you go, overnight. Wow. Overnight. So, uh, you know, they went out and bought, they used some equity and debt, but there was a mix of it and they went out and what did they do? They, they went and acquired other companies. Well, there's your staying power. Now you've got 
an organization that has a merger acquisition department inside of it. And what are they doing? They're very easily coming up with solutions to how they can expand. And this is a truth for me. The only way to overcome a, a problem or a barrier is to become bigger than the problem. So where, where, where you're a small company and the problems and the barriers exist, uh, one of the barriers is, well, you know, if I could only have another you know, million, $10 million in sales, if I only had that, I could easily overcome that my margins are so low, <laughs> or I could easily overcome that I need this added staff or team of people. Well, naturally, if you had the more sales, you could overcome the problem. You've become bigger than the problem. And the public capital markets offer so many variations to how a company can be easily become bigger than the problem. So, you, you know, actually, there's an expression that has been used in the United States repeatedly, ironically, it's called too big to fail. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> like, like, you know, they have a problem. Clearly, there's been industries that have that have not overcome particular problems, but they're so big, they've become such a, a necessity, almost a public utility to some degree, that they're too big to fail. So the fact is that that's a, a feature of expanding. Expansion to me is life. Like there's nothing in the world that stays stagnant. It's either sure. declining or it's expanding. And so the public capital markets offer a constant mechanical way to have a very precise calculation of your expansion because it's known by your share price. The, the share price is either going up or down. And if your you look at- cap, right? Yeah, your market cap. And, and here's the thing, over, over decades, if you look at you know, investing in the public capital markets over the long, long, long term is clearly uh, kind of the dumbest and easiest way to acquire wealth. You know, if you bought McDonald's stock in the 1970s and just held on to it, <laughs> um, you know, 50 years later, it's there's a fortune in your in your brokerage account. Sure. So the the importance of the public capital markets towards real wealth and towards real survival can't be understated. And that this is why it's a tongue and groove uh, analysis when you look at diversity, because if if a segment of society has never really participated in the public capital markets, a, di a diverse and insular group. Um, and and you, could, you could lay it across all diverse areas. There's, there's women-owned businesses, there's minority-owned businesses of all types. In general, what you'll see is that they can, they can have the best idea, they can have the better mousetrap, but <clears throat> there hasn't been a deliberate effort until us um, to engage with public capital markets with the diverse imaginative idea making groups that can then become the leadership of taking the idea into the next you know kind of generation of product so that is to me it solves this is why I'm doing this. It's not so much that there's a, 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 and there is a good financial and mechanical way to look at it, which is sure. public capital markets, you make some wealth. Um, on the other hand, what we're doing, it's an accident. We've been at this for 14 years, saying what I'm saying to you now, 
and I think before, and we were, we had minority partners in uh, January or February of 2020, and no one cared. And then there's this societal unrest that happened in May, and all of a sudden, everyone was paying attention to what we were doing, like, oh, wait, um, why isn't this happened for decades? Why do we not have a, a more Black-owned public companies? Well, if we don't have the Black-owned public company, we don't have the living wage job creation in communities. If you don't have living wage job creation, now you have a, an urban problem. You have a kind of like, you know, you're counting on the dry cleaners and the liquor store <laughs> to sort of make the community go. Um, and, and the truth is, I live in a particularly interesting area where there are probably 14 or 15 of the Fortune 500 global headquarters right. within five miles of my home. And it's the northern and northwest suburbs of, of the Chicagoland area. And you'll find the most prosperous communities surrounded by, you know, for example, Allstate Insurance. World headquarters is about sure. three miles from my, from my home. They have 30,000 employees that work at the world headquarters. Now, they commute from all over the area. Mm -hmm. But there's 30,000 people who are making really good living wage uh, jobs uh, and, and, and incomes. And they are communities. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a suburb that's a company town called Allstate. They're all over. But imagine now we have 15 of those in the northern suburbs. The northern suburbs of Chicago are one of the most prosperous, safe places on earth. The communities are, are tremendous. The schools are tremendous. The, the, the stores, the shopping, the, well, where is all that prosperity being born from? Where is the community itself thriving? Mm -hmm. where, where, where is it coming from? Well, it's coming from very large uh, public company headquarters that involve all kinds of jobs and opportunities that are not merely struggling to make ends meet. In other words, you know, I've, I've said this, and I've actually said it to congressional leadership who agree with me in the United States. I said, look, I'm not in the fight over whether we should be increasing or holding steady with the minimum wage. It's a different question. The question you have to ask is, why are there so many college educated people who are only looking for a minimum wage job opportunity. Where are the jobs in human resources? Where are the jobs in marketing? Where are the jobs in treasury? Where are the jobs in production and quality control and public relations? And there's, there's so many job opportunities that are career path jobs within a very large uh, corporation, a public corporation that just don't even exist in the small public, uh, small private companies. They, they dispense with certain of those what are necessary activities because they're, they're utilizing every resource to make sure they survive right. rather than expand and thrive. So that's, that, that is a, a, a provable data, um, you know, kind of analysis of why entry into minority communities with the public capital markets can actually be a, a societal transformative activity. It's not going to solve itself overnight, but we have to start somewhere. At some point or another, we have to begin, right? Um, you know, the, the old 
I think there's a Chinese proverb that says a journey of a thousand miles begins with but a step. So right. that's, that's what we have to do. We've got to take those steps in the right direction. And that's primarily been the direction of our, of our diversity program. Um, and it's not transactional. The one, sorry, I, I could go on and on. But, but, but this is, I think this is an important point to make. Many, many of the largest corporations have what they call diversity programs. Uh, they want to spend money and uh, when they're buying things, they want to purchase them from minority-owned, privately held companies. They're trying to, and that's a good thing, they're, they're calling it an investment in the minority community, but it really isn't. That's a misnomer. It's a transaction. Yeah. So, so and what happens then is, and I actually had this very example with a very large, you would know the name. It's a household name, sure. technology company, a global technology company. And they decided to spend $500 million on minority or diversity uh, companies. They were going to look for vendors. Wow. And they wanted to spend $500 million in the year, fiscal year 2020. And one of my potential candidates for the Dream Exchange offered their products to this large company. And what the problem was, is this was a tech company. <laughs> so I'm getting closer to revealing who they are. But um, the point is this tech company said, gee, um, the problem is that we have literally tens of thousands of software engineers that already work for us. So if we buy this software engineering from an outside company, I'll probably get fired. We have, like, if you guys fail, I've just spent a lot of money on something that didn't work outside mm -hmm. the company, everyone's going to ask, well, why didn't you just solve this problem internally? Which goes to your point, which is it can't be diversity for diversity's sake. Right. There's actually a real production cycle that eventually gets paid attention. So, so they didn't do the transaction. And you know what we found out later is that one of the ways they were satisfying spending this amount of money was they gave a, a, a paper uh, contract, literally paper, paper towels, <laughs> um, you know, the company spends millions of dollars on all of its facilities ordering, uh, you know, paper towels and toilet paper. Well, one black owned company that happened to mass produce or be in the production of, of the paper towels. Okay. They're awarded a single contract for a year. So that's a transaction. That's not an investment. So that person prospers and maybe even if they land the huge, very multi-million dollar contract that they've never had before, we've just made a single company very well off. And that single company may or may not choose to reinvest in facilities to become a genuine like corporate entity that could be publicly traded. It's very likely that the owner of that private company will think, great, I just made a couple of million dollars. And I'm so much better off and improve their own situation, which is perfectly logical. There's nothing mm. wrong with that. It's just that it's, it's a bit like trying to drain the ocean by taking an eyedropper of water out of it every time you have a problem. And we're not interested in that isolated little tiny one dropper problem. We're actually coming up with a capital market solution. How do we change the entire marketplace? so that these organizations mm -hmm. can then expand. And the first step is 
and this is the first step in approaching the dream exchange. What is your idea? What is your product? Yep. Does your product offer solutions that can, that can be expanded into the characteristics that will someday be a public company? If it isn't, let us help train you. Let us help educate you as to how you can make that company into the large organization that, is, that then becomes a small public company. Because as I said before, $20 million to acquire companies, that's a lot of money to a small corporation. $20 million in Apple computers uh, income statement or balance sheet isn't a rounding error. They could, there could be $20 million worth of fraud. We would never know it at Apple. <laughs> okay. But a $20 million line of credit to acquire other companies to, to kind of roll them up and merge and become a very viable small public company changes the landscape. It's hundreds of jobs, hundreds, if not thousands. Because the statistic I said was 92% of all jobs are created after the company goes public. Well, if, you, if you're able to keep capitalizing on that, that's where there's a 100-employee private firm, there's a 1,000-employee um, a public firm. And the, and the ripple effect, there's a, there's a ripple effect to that. You know, 1,000 jobs of you know, nuclear families it affects the minimum is it affects 4,000 people's lives now because you've got children and communities and, and now they're doing more of the buying and selling and living in the community. There, there's, there's, there's the uh, microeconomic effects to having created the macroeconomic effect. There, the, certainly the, the local stores will prosper as they have in the Northern suburbs of Illinois by virtue of the fact that there's a lot of people supporting for example, all state insurance. So that's the, it's not, it's not some uh, hokey uh, kind of, uh, unfortunately, I'm just not the, I'm, I'm just not a, a soundbite guy because uh, a lot of soundbite people would call this, um, you know, trickle down economics or sure. some type of, you know, raising the, 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 the high tide raises all tidal boats. ships. Yep. Yes. That's, that's not necessarily what we're talking about here. It's, it's really not that. It's actually a production-based economic system where if you're producing and you have products you're producing and selling and producing and selling and producing and selling, well, naturally, unless you're selling the product for less than it costs to make it, <laughs> um, you're, you're, you're making money, you're, you're, you're prospering, you're surviving. And then with the public capital markets, we, we would hope that you'd those people will be able to thrive and <clears throat> across all communities, which then doesn't it make us all better off? I mean, wouldn't we all be better off with a prosperous, uh, you know, with every town and borough prosperous? Um, it, it takes nothing away from me to see prosperity throughout the land. I, it certainly actually makes us all safer um, and it makes for a better society in general. And it, it, and, and, and ironically, it isn't actually, and people have labeled it capitalism. I'm, I'm not a fan of any isms um, because yes, there's capital being invested in the, the marketplace, but the ism of capitalism is not so true here. What's true is it's a production-based environment because the small companies, the small public companies especially, they just don't have the luxury to not produce. So in that sense, you know, <laughs> the sociological arguments are, well, 
who's really benefiting? The, the workers are really benefiting. The workers, and I don't want to sound like there's a socialism to it, but the workers at the companies and in the smaller environment tend to be more, more able to survive. Whereas you get into the, as you get to the large trillion dollar public companies, uh, you know, you can enter into a lot of corporate politics and things that are not necessarily as production oriented. Um, so there is a balance, but this balance that tends towards a production-based economic system where one is able to uh, enjoy the fruits of their labor, if you will, um, and allowing a broader audience of society to actually experience that phenomenon is a good thing. And it's not a political or a uh, socioeconomic uh, philosophy, but it's just a very pragmatic thing that if you have tomatoes and you can sell them and, and, and they cost you uh, less to produce the tomatoes than you sell them for, you're better off selling tomatoes. It's microeconomics at its core. Uh, and that's what we're trying to bring into the capital market system. We're trying to bring a, a micro marketplace into the public capital markets by utilizing the best ideas at, at, at the outset, certainly, and hopefully forever, we just get the smallest, most ingenious company. I would love to have Steve Jobs, wherever you are existing in the universe today, uh, approach the Dream Exchange to become your public capital market. So someday you can go into direct competition uh, with, with the Apple computers of the world. Um, that, that would be a great joy because, you know, this phone, <laughs> this, that, that, that has changed the way we live. That, that, that invention of these products changes how we survive on this planet as a species. And I want, I, we, going back to your very opening remarks, that's what we really want. Mm. We want to get the best ideas and the most imaginative products to get a sufficient amount of capital to expand because that expansion is life itself. That's how we survive. And in terms of those ideas coming to the fore, where, where do you see them falling down and not coming to the fore? And will they eventually be invented by, else, you know, by somebody else elsewhere? What does that look like from your experience? And, and why do the best folks rise to the top? Or do they not miss a trick sometimes? So, yeah, good observation. Uh, no, it is not the case in the current marketplace of ideas that the best idea always gets the venture capital investment and rises to the top. That's, that just simply is untrue. Mm -hmm. And th there's one real reason for it. And actually this is by survey. We've actually surveyed what the entrepreneur and what the investor, uh, what's the key word that would describe to them uh, the most critical, um, <clears throat> I guess, word that, that calls to mind everything that they're trying to overcome. When it comes to capital markets and the word that was surveyed was access meaning they don't have access to one another and what if anything is a stock marketplace but access between investor and company because that marketplace doesn't exist so are there very good venture capital ideas? This is not the panacea that solves all of the world's problems in, in, in one fell swoop with the stroke of a pen for dream exchange. No, there'll be good privately 
invested in and grown companies. There will be there will be unicorns. There'll be companies that you know are a multi-billion dollar public mm-hmm. offering. The, mm-hmm. So you know, I've often said it, it's not forever, it's a voluntary marketplace. On the other hand, at the moment, there is no voluntary marketplace that even exists. There's no place for the small public company to go and begin to get the access they need. And, you know, I look at this as, I I view it as a very pioneering statement because what you're saying about the, the diversity of ideas, the free marketplace of ideas. Indeed. So that free marketplace to me is the commodity. So if you look at the world commodity markets, Mm -hmm. um, you know, for a long time, Chicago is the commodity market place. The the world's largest commodity market is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Yep. And they invented capital market products that never before existed so as to be assured that the commodities themselves would always have a sufficient amount of interest to continue to produce. Uh, Before there were corn futures, before there were pork belly futures, before there were cattle futures, there were pork bellies and cattle and, and, and the commodities themselves. And, and that is a thriving marketplace. And if you look at the expansion of the commodity marketplace and how many things are now considered commodities themselves, that have a futures market, uh, the S&P 500 futures. Well, if you don't have the S&P 500, if you don't have the original equity stocks, then you can't have a futures market, right? So what, what we look at the Dream Exchange is creating the commodity itself. Like what is the global marketplace for entrepreneurial ideas? Where are they all? In what sectors are they? Who has come up with the holy grail of silicon uh, you know uh, engineering technology and where is it and do they even have access to a capital marketplace or are they hidden somewhere in some garage the way apple computer was so unless we create a a, a gigantic funnel that begins to create an a communication environment between the public investing community and the ingenious entrepreneur well then that commodity marketplace doesn't even exist. So we have to get the commodity to market. We have to build the foundation of, and and look at some point, let's just say that there are five or 6,000 companies that become part of this new marketplace. Well, that's double the size of the current public marketplace. (laughs) Okay. And with that doubling in size, we can become more familiar with what a new candidate looks like. It won't be just, we won't be, you know, the old expression is, um, you know, the pioneers get the arrows and the settlers get the land. <laughs> so True. At, this, at this moment, I'm, um, you know, I'm a pioneer, if you will. We're pioneering a brand new way to build a consortium of ideas and, and companies and investors to come to a brand new marketplace with a brand new structure, with a way that accommodates the investor and the company together. And and in particular is willing to look and actually put, we have an office in uh, the Chicago Urban League to have our attention be placed on the exact locations where those companies will be born. And a direct answer to your question about 
do the best companies always make it. I can name, you know, I'm not sure what my confidentiality requirements are, but I can name three black owned companies that were in Chicago that should be small public companies today, if not multi-hundred million dollar public companies that didn't make it. And their ideas, organic products, actually organic desserts where scalable McDonald's was interested in having an organic dessert from the one particular company and they didn't make it. Now imagine you get to go to McDonald's and your dessert choices have an organic food product. you know, we're all better off in so many different ways. And the factories and plants for those mm-hmm. companies were in right in the community of Chicago, which I think is is probably uh, among the most, you know, kind of, uh, you know, economically sketchy. You can't really figure it out. It's near Hyde Park. So there's some very beautiful uh, and, and prosperous areas around the University of Chicago. But just west of there is where one of these factories was. And, you know, you're on the cusp of, of economic blight. Well, look at all the jobs that would have been put right there because that person lived there and was willing to work there. And, and these, are not, these are not people that came from, um, from uh, what I would call pet, unpedigreed backgrounds. The one CEO was a Harvard MBA. <laughs> okay. So, right. And that, that's very telling. You have a Harvard MBA who has a company in the Black community creating a product that we would all generally agree is a very outstanding idea and product, and they lack the capital resources to expand. So the answer is no, not every one of them is getting quickly identified, has access to the capital, and suddenly becomes a unicorn. Um, I'm, I'm a, you know, so that's my limited example, but there are clearly examples, and that's just me. <laughs> No, I think you've set the stage there quite well. And I think some of the mistakes that I see is this over-indexing on diversity where the the merit behind it is, you know, good. Nobody would ever say that it's it's a bad thing to have diversity. There's no one out there saying that. But but I think at the same time, this over-indexing on diversity for diversity's sake. um, And I unfortunately, you know, in what I do, I get illegal requests and illegal emails quite regularly from people who are good people right yeah they're, they're not bad people um um but but it, it is illegal for them to contract me to break the law um mm-hmm. and, and what i mean by that is you need to provide x number of candidates from a particular demographic of a particular sexual orientation of a particular religion and i said are you aware, respectfully, it is illegal for me to ask these questions? Yeah, so, right. You know, so I, I you know, I, I can't, but but the merit in what they're trying to do is is good because they're trying to bring a more diverse um, working environment and culture to the fore, you know, and I massively believe, I, I think the best example of this known to man, in my opinion, is the United States, where you have this massive melting pot of cultural diversity and you know having having you know my roots in europe i can tell you that feudal tribalism you know served nobody but let, let's <laughs> let's not go there for now um uh, particularly true in the irish context among others but um what you're saying there is that it's it's lack of access to capital resource than it is anything else and i would also supplement that by saying it's education and awareness of that access to um, capital resources. Did I summarize that in a reasonable fashion, Joe? I, I think it's it's very 
very accurate. And I think the emphasis would be on uh, the, the education and literacy of it, because your, your point is ex extremely well taken. With, you know, and, and so these societal things, they tend to work like a pendulum. Um, you know, in, in some ways it swings in one direction, then it swings back in the other and then swinging. And, you know, if you're in the diverse group, you tend not to be the one who's, um, you know, either the pendulum is favoring, uh, you know, lots of diversity attention or the pendulum falls off of the diversity attention. And then, as my father would say, uh, even a blind chicken will find a little corn. That's, that's not a solution. <laughs> you know, that, that's, that's, that's not a solution either. So the happy, the happy medium is, um, yeah, of course, you're, you, you can't use, this has never been a, even the United States Supreme Court has a, its own way of discussing this. And what it says is that, um, the ends generally do not justify the means. And therefore, when you implement something that tends to uh, balance the ends versus the means, you can, you can come up with an unjust outcome. And the justice of it is very much along the lines of, look, we're trying to accomplish something that has good intention. Uh, but just as I was saying about the very large tech company last year, um, they couldn't just award the contract merely because it checked a diversity box on the proposal. Very interesting. And, and yes, and 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 the, the here's what's really important about that uh, that that aspect in that environment in that environment. It is perfectly legal to say, is the company black owned? Whereas in an employment situation, mm. it's completely not appropriate. Mm. <laughs> you can't ask, you know, any more than you can say, uh, you know, oh, you're a female. Do you plan on getting pregnant? Well, then we're not going to hire you because our insurance <laughs> costs will go up. It's just an insane conversation. And it puts, the, it puts everyone in a very difficult spot on the employment level. See, and, and that's, this is another example of the exact same minimum wage discussion. Why are we even having that discussion at all? Why do we not have an entire company that has been capitalized, that is owned by, that is in the community, where now there's a segment of society where like-minded people are flourishing, they're delivering great products, and we don't even have this consideration like, wouldn't it be a wonderful day? when the, the uh, considerations are, are so far removed that you'd say, well, what do you mean uh, that you, you need more uh, you know, diverse uh, people in sexual orientation and, and in race? I, we can't find them, they all have jobs. <laughs> they're, they're all employed everywhere. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Why do we even have to talk about that? That's, that's just silly. Everyone's working. Um, and, you know, maybe perhaps that's a bit naive and utopian. But my, my point and what we're trying to express with our company is that, well, if we don't at least start heading for that potential utopia, we don't create the environment where, 
okay, there's these companies that are that can flourish, that have wonderful products that are diverse. Well, if we create that environment, we've taken the first step on perhaps what is a longer journey to, to making society a bit more egalitarian, I guess. Or I think that's or, profound. I, I absolutely love that, Joe. And I hope that we do get there. And I hope there aren't people bought in to still wanting to have that fight when we achieve that utopia. And I do think that'll happen. And I'm also not naive enough to think that there isn't that out there that exists. But I don't think it's inherent. You know, I, I, I don't think there are out there active discrimination. I don't believe that. I don't want to believe that. I, I think there are bad people in the world for sure. But I, I think you've put that in a very um, realistic way, I think, is what, what, what it is. And I think we will get there. I, I'm yeah, an optimist. Pra- yeah, pr- the pragmatism of it is what we're focused on, first and foremost, because mm. there, are, there are fringe elements to anything. And it, when you pay attention to that, and that you, you focus all of your energy or attention on, you know, and it's, it's the politics of it. I mean, let's right. just be candid. If you pay attention to the politics of it, um, you know, and I've learned this, I've gotten a bill through the Congress and I just, I did so by ignoring the politics. I never addressed what we're doing by saying one political party or another should look at this and, and favor it. Um, I've always approached it with it, the, and this is a, it's an interesting thing that I think we'd all be better off doing in general. Um, you know, I'm, a, I'm myself, I have my own a bargaining power, and this is actually a written economic theory. This is a subject for an entire other show, but I'll give it to you in Reader's Digest. Um, you know, we had Adam Smith. He, he, the, the, the philosophy was, you know, every man for himself. Sure. And and, uh, you know, to the extent that the man and, and, and his family were uh, opponents of the world, you know, you would assume that the other person is trying to take as equal advantage of you as you are them. And that's how you should approach economics, which that economic theory actually has, has become passe. And we, we developed into a new phase, which was actually a brilliant man, um, John Forbes Nash, who was a Princeton economist, and he, he came up really with what is the evolution of modern game theory, which is my group versus your group. So I can now function if it's good for me, but it's not as good for me personally, but it benefits my group and I defeat your group. It's a zero sum game. I have to beat you. You have to beat me. That's the game we're playing was groups versus groups. And that's, yeah. we evolved to that point with John Forbes Nash and, and, in a certain amount of, of, you know, his creating a certain equilibrium between groups. We've now, we've now transitioned. And the reason we've transitioned is we've, we've become a global marketplace. We now actually have considerations about using the world's resources, not destroying the world's resources, using the world's, um, you know, the life that is on earth, the fishing of oceans and the harvesting of crops. And, and, and I think the, the, the greatest evolution we could have is where we consider that the group we're trying to create a benefit for is humankind. That we are all, we all share a single um, unified group, which is that mankind itself would be better off if dot 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 and if if the best idea 
we're born from a person, a human being who happens to be, you know, uh, you know, has a different sexual orientation or has a different skin color, but they have, they truly have something to contribute that makes mankind better off. We should be listening to them because we are all part of that same group. We're all spinning on the same, uh, you know, marble uh, in space. So to the extent that the greatest imaginations and the greatest ideas are born from the most inauspicious potential places, then we should be listening to them. Beethoven is, is the shining example. You know, he's a, he's a, uh, a deaf child born of a woman of, of speculative morals uh, in, in the, ninth, the ninth child and grow up in poverty. Who would, who would have suspected, and I happen to be a classical music fan, so Beethoven is on my, on my playlist, sure. but who would have suspected that from that inauspicious place, an imaginative genius will be born? And this is the capital markets. We, have to, we actually have to look at this in our marketplaces and say, hmm, because we're now in the idea age. This, if I were to label anything, it's not the communication age. True. It's, you know, there's all kinds of, we're in the idea age. And, and here's the other important factor. Really taking a good pragmatic look at, does your idea help us to survive better or not? That's a highly confronting thing because it, it definitely has, uh, you know, potential conflicting political ideologies, just like what you were suggesting. It's like there's a fringe person, they, they just want their idea to be right. And I, I think the unfortunate truth that I'm overcoming to some degree is that uh, very often a person's desire to be right uh, rather than correct uh, is one of the strongest impulses of humankind, which is probably why we have war and, and <laughs> I and couldn't fights. agree more. Um, so what we're what we're trying to do in in the capital markets is identify the ideas and the imagination from wherever they come that have the most potential to expand our ability to survive and give them the money they need to expand on those ideas and to expand that forefront and and to do so in a way that uh, that that isn't politicized in any way. Um, and like I said, that is a bit down the road. I, I didn't do this for next year. This is, I, mm -hmm. uh, hopefully my children's children will have the dream exchange ticker along whatever uh, visual devices they're using 50 years from now and looking at all the companies that we helped to create. Uh, in the meantime, here I sit pioneer uh, plucking arrows <laughs> out, out of the, uh, uh, you know, out of the body to make sure that I keep the show on the road. And this is one of the ways I'll tell you why I wanted to come back to make sure I talk to you is um, this is the most important discussion actually taking place in our society today. Wow. That's the one we're having right now. That's, I don't, I don't even know that that's necessarily just a personal viewpoint because all the other discussions they tend towards one or the other of the fringe of the what divides us. Sure. And what if we don't concentrate on what the commonality is or what actually joins us? Uh, another Italian grandfather famous line, una familia. 
like unifying our family, having a single family of human beings. If we don't really put all of our attention into that discussion, well, it's easy to find things that divide us. I mean, let's face it, the Irish and the Italians in Chicago fought for 60 years over who was going to sell what beer where. You and I are friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> true. We're uniting opposite. over capital markets here, Joe. Exactly. That's the point <laughs> of the exercise. That's exactly the way it should go. Um, yeah. And, that, and, that, and I think that the diversity in the workplace question will disappear like Gossamer once that's taking place. If we get the capital into the companies uh, and there's job creation, uh, there's just going to be so much of out creating the problem. It's just the problem we've we've become so much bigger than the problem. Um, I think someone once said, uh, look, you know, I'm a a Cold War era child. So, uh, you know, someone once said, geez, if if the Soviets and the United States were to uh, just put everything down for a minute because a Martian landed on earth and we've now found ourselves with a common enemy, we could probably use all of our resources together to make sure that we survived on the planet. Well, there becomes, you know, now you've got a bigger problem to solve. Um, and that's what we're trying to, to do is become bigger than the, the pettiness of all of these discussions where it's like, okay, whatever, I got it. But what is the idea and how does that help us to survive tomorrow? Because we're growing. The planet is growing and it's, it's moving at a speed. Uh, the human race is moving at a speed that, that never has before um, been confronted by us. Think about the change in the last 120 years. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's mind boggling. Yeah. I mean, and I can't even begin to imagine the next 120 years. People are laughing at Elon Musk. We'll be I don't on Mars know. in 10 years. I, you know, um, JFK said, we're, we, we, you know, we'll, we'll have a man on the moon in, in the next decade from 1961. Uh, Elon Musk is saying we're going to commute to Mars. I, I can't even imagine 100 years from now what the landscape looks like. And the, all those ideas, they're being born somewhere. Uh, and, and let me just say this. That's, that's just a technological discussion. What I've, I'm, I'm, my hobbies and my tendencies are towards entertainment and art and listening to music. There's so much, the joy of living. There's so much in the joy of living that's born in the communities where creation, I mean, I would love to see a public record label, public company record label that actually supports uh, the artist community in a way that has never been done before. Mm -hmm. Okay. I mean, we have a community of, of artists that really have to go through a lot of very private entertainment obstacles to get to the point where they're now so established that, of course, the, 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 the public communications will pick them up and sign a contract and they get, great, they're signed with Disney now. But boy, that journey ignores a tremendous number of extraordinary artists. Um, you know, Beethoven is not being discovered in our present day environment. Um, and I, I think that the best way to do it is to create the smaller environment, pay attention. Um, anyway, I, I, could, I could go on and on. Uh, this theory that I have is not something, just so you know, where I say we're transcending John Forbes Nash. I can actually mathematically, uh, and we have mathematically and formulaically put those decision-making models 
into quantifiable decision-making matrix. So when you say, hmm, I think we should do X, but that X will be destructive in this way. And the destruction actually outweighs the, the positive elements of it. And we can add them up in terms of the groups that are in our society, in terms of our the humankind itself, life on earth, exhaustion of resources, all of those things can, we're smart. Look, we are gonna go to Mars. We can actually do this formulation that says, this idea is in fact more beneficial to all of us than it is harmful. And we should give that money. That's not something that requires a, a, a physics degree in, from MIT, um, you know, yeah. and, and a dissertation yeah. that one can translate to Mandarin. It doesn't take somebody that smart to figure that stuff out. We do it every day when we buy organic eggs at the grocery store. We're, we're making those choices. We know, we know better. We're, we're, we know right from wrong. So that's the, this is the main philosophical and formulaic underpinnings of the dream exchange. We're actually, we actually have a formula by which we are trying to develop candidacies for the ideas that will be the companies for which the investors will understand and agree, ah, of course we have to give that idea a chance. So for folks who want to reach out to you, what's the best way of getting in touch, Joe? Best way of getting in touch is our website, which is uh, <clears throat> dreamex, D-R-E-A-M-E-X.com, dreamex.com. And really, uh, there's, there, we're kind of easy. I mean, actually, I do have dialogue with people, some people from some of the, the um, podcasts I've done. The email address is info at dreamx.com. And I look at those uh, and our senior management looks at, if you send us an email, we're going to be back in communication with you. We actually keep to the spirit of things, which is we, maybe your idea is the one that we need to pay attention to. Um, so info at dreamx.com. And we also have our, our social media site called uh, DreamX Connect, which you can, everything can be accessed through the website, all of our public relations and media and what we're doing in Congress and uh, everything is easily accessed through the website at dreamx.com. Well, Joe, I really want to thank you for part two, for being what's been a phenomenal guest. Uh, I think you may actually have a permanent seat uh, <laughs> on the uh, Global Tech Leaders uh, Security Council, so to speak. I really appreciate your uh, participation and some of the knowledge bombs you've dropped. It's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience. Thank you. Thank you. I, I really, I do enjoy our discussion. So, and uh, hopefully when we have some big announcements, maybe I'll come back again and post big announcement. We have a couple bombs coming up. So no question. Um, maybe we'll do this again with some more news. And you'll be very welcome. Thank you, sir. Thank, thank you so much. You've been listening to the Global Tech Leaders Podcast, designed for both established and aspiring career-focused tech rock stars, as well as helping leadership figure out how to speak global in today's multicultural world. For further details, check out sf-talent.com.